from west to east and kingdom to kingdom, you're listening to the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. with Walt is brought to you by Dreams Unlimited Travel, experts at helping you plan the perfect Disney vacation. Visit them on the web at dreamsunlimitedtravel.com. Hello and welcome to episode 102 of the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. I am your host and Diz historian, Michael Bowling, and I am joined by my co-host, producer, and good friend, Craig Williams, who's just returned from the edge of the galaxy. Yes. So, Craig, how are you? I am exhausted, and I apologize for sounding so nasally, but uh, I'm getting over uh, my my sickness. I, I hope I'm getting over my sickness. I'm hoping it's... It's not returning again, but I was I was sick pretty much uh, the majority of the time that I was I was in California and on the planet of Batu. So uh, it's been. Oh, a week. did you pick up some sort of Batu virus or something? I I definitely hey, from think the, I did from some. From some denizen in the cantina, perhaps. Yeah, I uh, all I can <laughs> say is, it, apparently, humans have a very weak immune system when they get very little sleep for like four days straight, and so I, I must have I must have ate something or touched something after after someone from Batu already did the same thing and and picked up some germs because. Uh, you can, if you watch some of our, our great videos that we released on youtube.com slash disunplugged, I'm getting a lot of comments about how I look like I'm sunburned and, and why don't I understand that I, that I can wear sunscreen? Uh, it, it's not (laughs) that I was, I was in the sun. I was literally burning up. Um, I, (laughs) I felt my face get bright red and I could just, I felt like I was, I, I felt like my head was on fire. I could feel the sweat pouring down my face, and and I asked Ryan, I was like, "Does is my face red? Like, does it does it look like I have a fever? Because I feel really hot." And she's like, eh, "Yeah, your face is a little red, but it was sunny outside today." Like, I don't know. This is this is something intense. And then after uh, three or four nights now of having the cold chills while I'm wrapped up in blankets and and still pouring out sweat uh it's pretty uh concise that I was very very sick um if yeah. if the mucus and and the congestion and all that doesn't also paint the picture so uh, but none of the team has gotten sick so uh that's good because I definitely ate literally like I took bites off of stuff that then they ate right afterwards so, oh my goodness! Um, whatever <laughs> you know, it's, it could have been just exhaustion, and the what happens from that. But uh, I'm, I'm, I think I'm taking the day off tomorrow as of the time we're recording this. Good. So, so we're not gonna. Good it, for you. This will release later. Now, so. <laughs> now, I, now I know that 
you're all going to go into more detail on this in our Walt Disney World show and our Disneyland show. So folks should definitely tune into those as well as the videos are great. I even sent you a text message at one point. Yes. Letting you know. I don't know if you got it. You know, I did. It was just insane. And, Thank you, though. I'll bet. Oh, you're welcome. But uh, so folks should check those out and listen to those shows. But just sort of in a nutshell, uh, let's say, you know, Walt fancied himself. Walt wanted to be known as a storyteller. That's where he felt his skill was. And that's how he wanted to be remembered. So from a storytelling point of view, does this, how does Star Wars Galaxy Ed, Galaxy's Edge do? Does it carry on that legacy of storytelling that Walt, you know, wanted in his films and his shows and his parks? Uh, see, that's that is a complicated question that I don't feel like has been brought up enough yet, and a question that I was timid in asking asking cast members and imagineering about. Um, from what I can see on paper, they were hoping that, you know, they have set up the backstory of Batu now with the, the comic books that have been released. There's uh, mm-hmm. two out so far in the series, I believe, with three more to come. Uh, at least one book has mentioned Batu. We've now seen it in Star Tours as one of the endings. And there's still going to be more literature that mentions Batu and really goes into the backstory. One full book, or maybe two full books dedicated. They gave me two advanced copies of books uh, during my media event there. I haven't had a chance to even even sit down and read them yet, but it's it's on my to-do next. Um, so they are building the story of Batu, but because all of this media hasn't come out yet... It's really, they're still working with the basics of of the story from what they've been told. That Bat- Batu has been in the galaxy for a long, long time. It's a place uh, where, you know, obviously the Resistance has called home. Smugglers feel at home there. The First Order has a presence. Uh, it's it's very much dated in this time period between the, the Eighth and Ninth movies uh, at that, so... They've set up the story in basics, but they didn't have, they don't have that much to go off of yet, in my opinion, still. Uh, kind of similar to how, like, the first time I met Captain Marvel on Disney Cruise Line before the movie came out, it felt like she was doing an impression of Brie Larson in the trailers and not having <laughs> that entire source to really reflect on and help build the character. Uh, this kind of is how it feels the same way there. But there are stories that are very well told uh, inside this landscape. And that's where I think Walt would be proud. Like for the build your own lightsaber experience, that's in Savi's workshop. Um, you can walk up to the, the cast members guarding the 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 entrance to that location. Uh, it's, it's just like an outside courtyard. But there is a line of cast members standing there. And if you walk up to them and say, is this where I can build my own lightsaber? They will not hesitate. They will tell you right away. No, this is a scrap metal yard. And I mean, they, they go heavily with that. And the reason they do is because it is a scrap metal yard. And really you are paying, uh, you are paying to go in and work with the scrap metal, which then you find out that uh, actually you're going to be building a lightsaber 
out of that scrap metal per se. So, ah, but because the first, okay, I like that. Yes, because the first order is around, they can't actually say out loud, "Oh yeah, come here and build lightsabers," because of course the first order wouldn't allow that. <laughs> So it has to be like that. Right. Um, and it's so you have storyline in that way. You have, you know, obviously the entire planet is kind of it's this outpost and you see the Millennium Falcon parked out there. Um, that's where we pick up the storyline with Honda, Hondo Onaka, not Honda. He's not a he's not a car brand. Um but Hondo Onaka and his <laughs> Onaka Transport Solutions, which they are continuing the story and weaving it in with the movies in that the, the plot line for Millennium Falcon Smuggler's Run is that Chewbacca is lending the Millennium Falcon to Hondo, who you might know from the animated series, uh, the Star Wars animated series, and uh, uh, Clone Wars and Rebels. And uh, Hondo is... He's recruiting pilots, engineers, and gunners to to fly the Millennium Falcon, pilot the Millennium Falcon, to help steal coaxium. And, of course, some goes to him. And then the rest uh, that's left over, uh, any resources left left over, will go to the resistance. So it, it ties in that way, too. So we know that we're... We're there to uh, we're we're there to continue the story of you know the resistance is at a very bad place at the end of the last Jedi and they're they're struggling so they're looking they're looking for whatever help they can find to to rebound and come back so it the story is coming through in those ways right now and the cast members are embracing it they're they're sticking to the lingo everywhere they're using credits instead of money um they they will they're just not they're not i know that's just one example but it's one of the biggest things i was worried about is that you're going to walk in there and these people aren't going to be willing to play the part. But like when I was on Millennium Falcon Smugglers Run once, when I was in one of the, the rooms of the Millennium Falcon, the one with the hollow chest board and such, that's a, a waiting area. Mm -hmm. They were having a little downtime issue and the cast members were talking back and forth. And normally this would be, in my opinion, a, a big no-no in, uh, in a Disney park because chances are they're going to be talking about their weekends or what they did, what they're going to do later on, you know, stuff that they shouldn't be talking about in front of guests. Instead, these cast members were so excited to be in these positions and really help build the story for the guests around them. So they were, you know, they were shooting lines off back and forth about about Hondo and oh he's he's going to be mad that this is taking so long and and we're going to have to really work hard to make up for for it and the delay and all of that and so they were just they were continuing to build this experience up by you know by just talking to each other even though they might not have been interacting with the guests they knew the guests were all listening and it was helping to build that story so the cast members are are getting into it even with with a lack of source material and in the land itself is so so detailed and so sectioned off from Disneyland itself that it helps build into that lore of this this is a this is Batu it's it's a planet and yes it it might be connected to Disneyland but but you didn't realize that it's been there forever and it really it really does feel like it could have been. So 
I think, I mean, I know you and I hate nothing more than going over the what would Walt think, what would Walt say on it, but I have to imagine that he would be blown away, um, because I, I know I am, and it's it's nothing like old Disney, but it's, it is definitely that next step forward. I, you know, I, I, again, I, I said on another show and I'll reiterate on this. I haven't seen like the Asian parks to see how they do it, but based on the domestic parks, I look at cars land is step one of really going for that environment. That's immersive, but that loses out on the fact that you don't actually feel immersed in it because, well, you're not cars and, everything in the cars universe is cars so that's a little bit of a strike against that the next step is pandora where they they made an amazing land but it's just there was something missing from that and galaxy's edge now feels like the thesis it feels like it feels hmm. like this is where they're going they're going all the way on and it's they made something special it's definitely not for everyone you have to be willing to have to spend a little money in order to get the most out of the experience. I believe that. Um, I think you can surely go in and just appreciate what you see and ride the Falcon and and be happy with that. But to get the full experience, you have to be willing to to invest money there or even ahead of time by dressing for the story. But uh, and I'll wrap this up here in like two more seconds. But um, the only thing I would say is a disappointment. I got to play around a little bit with it, but as we all expected, it drained my phone battery, and that's the the Play Disney Parks app and using my data pad to help continue the story around the land. It, while it was supposed to keep you invested in it, and some of the little mini games helped you like pay attention to stuff in line, like in the Smuggler's Run line, like. It, you were helping Hondo with an activity. And so he'd ask where you were in the line. And then like I was above the millennium Falcon. I had to, I had to look at the millennium Falcon and count how many pieces were there. So he knew what fixes that he needed to make. And so like it kept me involved in what was happening around me instead of just scrolling on Twitter or Facebook. But it, there's nothing about it that moved my story forward. There wasn't the stuff where, like what they were saying in the in all of the press leading up to it that you know if you crash the falcon you're going to go to the cantina next and and you might have someone mention to you how hondo's looking for you because of what you did there was nothing like that yet and i don't know if that will come down the line but my guess is it's always going to be way too busy to get those personalized uh stories through that they want and that scares me on the Walt Disney World side because, of course, they're building this hotel that is supposed to right. start the story yeah. at the hotel, take it into the land. If I can't see people being able to have a story in the land already, then I don't know how they're going to just make it once there's this hotel. But but it's it is something it is something else. It's. Uh, it's I'm very happy to see what Disney did with it. And you can you can listen to the Walt Disney World Edition podcast to hear uh kind of more of my thoughts on it versus like Universal with Diagon Alley and such. I'm not gonna go over that here, but it's it's pretty wild. It's Disneyland will never be the same, but I don't think it's in a bad way. Okay, well, 
Good. I'm glad to hear that. I'm very excited. I'm hoping to see it when we're all out there for the D23 Expo in a couple of months. And uh-huh. then I'm going out there. I'm taking my granddaughter to Disneyland in in December. So I'm hoping then that we'll get to go in at that time as well. Yes. So well, it would be interesting to see how they celebrate Christmas at Galaxy's Edge. Uh, by playing the awesome Christmas in the Stars <laughs> album. I'm sure you're... Are you aware of that? No. Oh, it's... People hate on uh, the the, uh, the Star Wars holiday special, uh, celebrating Life Day. Oh, yes. And such. We've, we've talked about that. Yes. And I, understandably, <laughs> it's terrible. Uh, it, it's just really no good. <laughs> but if you haven't listened to also the Christmas album, that didn't go along with that, but uh, but also with something put out in the time of let's get as much star wars out as possible uh it's the album's called christmas in the stars and the the title track on it is christmas in the stars sung by anthony daniels as c3po and oh gosh oh gosh oh is b arthur in it too oh i hope so is she singing her song no she's not (laughs) but there's other there's other classics like uh, "What Do You Get a Wookie for Christmas When He Already Owns a Comb." Um, okay, I have the forty-five of that. You do, yeah, and and I do, I do. I bought that when I was young because it was such a hoot. And then on the flip side was um, our, our, it was like "Merry Christmas R two D two R two D two. Yeah, yep. yeah. Oh, yep. I didn't realize that came from a larger album. Oh, it does. And I don't believe it's available on Apple Music or anything, but they re-released the CD back in the back in the 90s or sometime or early 2000s, and so I had a I had a rip of it in college. <laughs> and then I you can always you can find it on YouTube. People uploaded all the songs to it. It's so awful, but so perfect. Yeah. Already. Well, speaking of of another story, Aladdin. I I we've both seen that, and I think I uh, I think I enjoyed it a little. Based on your Twitter message that I saw there, I think I enjoyed it a little more than you did. I, so I, um, I I I don't feel it was a movie that was crying out to be made, and um, I. I I thought it was okay. I and I and I didn't like I really didn't like the the song everybody's raving about that Jasmine sings. Oh, uh, what was silence? I, I thought it just stopped speechless. Yeah. I thought it just well, it left me speechless. I thought it stopped the film just in its tracks, 100% especially the did. second time around. Oh yes, when when we, when we were swirling around there and. Some other dimension when she was singing it. Yeah, I thought that I thought that was the worst. They should have just pulled pulled the song. But I know it was for so it could be nominated for the Academy Awards, which it, it won't be probably. Uh, it'll get nominated. Anyway. It won't win. Um, it's not a good song. It's yeah. I I feel I I think actually if I'm not incorrect, I believe uh, I believe it was written by the same uh, the same songwriting team behind. Uh, the Greatest Showman and and La La Land, and I feel like uh-huh. while they struck magic once, I feel like they went. And this is just my opinion of 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 Greatest Showman. I'm not getting all into that, but it's too pop forward. 
It's a bunch of pop songs mm-hmm. in a movie, and this was the perfect example of it. It was a pop song in a movie, whereas the other songs help lend to the movie to help progress the story forward. This one did nothing. It was just a breakaway pop song on it. They need to stop doing that. Uh, and mm-hmm. I, I thought the movie, I, I said it uh, on on a show this week, and I, I've tried to convey it on Twitter. I thought it was an entertaining movie. It could have been 30 minutes shorter, in my opinion. Uh, it was a little on the long mm-hmm. side. There was a couple moments where I got bored because you knew where the story was going, mm-hmm. but it wasn't getting there at the same speed that it should have. Uh, but, but, my issue was more the quality with how it was made. Uh, the script was sloppy. Uh, I thought a lot of the effects were bad. I thought it was kind of, kind of a mess in the direction in general. But uh, it, that doesn't mean I it's not entertaining. The, yeah. Oh no. It's yeah. It's entertaining, and and I would say folks should you know it's, it's definitely see it. You know, especially if you you like the the original. Um, I didn't think Guy Ritchie is... I don't think staging musical numbers is his um, forte. No. And, um, you know, although, again, they were entertaining. But, um, oh, there was something else that popped into my head about it. Um, You know, I I thought it was fine. I, I didn't think Jafar was as hideous as people made him out to be i thought will smith you know robin williams owns that role yeah of the genie he is the genie and so you know will smith had an uphill battle so i thought he was fine i i it wasn't i liked that i guess that they continue they finished off what they had intended to do in the animated film which was that merchant narrator at the beginning of the film they were supposed to reveal at the end that that was actually the genie yeah in disguise so you know it, it was just a little too obvious you know in the beginning oh, yeah, of the film because we all know what Will Smith looks yeah. like so um yeah it's you I, know they did a good job hiding his wife but yeah um, I, I think you know, the but, biggest takeaway i want people to understand from this is because I feel like it is getting lost in more and more as we're seeing not just these remakes, but any movie come out there. Like I had someone today during our chat point out, like I don't have to analyze every movie I watch and I, I, you don't have to, but I would hope that people would at least, Mm -hmm. at least try to think about it a little bit the same way. Like if you're reading it's in the example I used in the chat was like, you can sit back and read the Scarlet letter and you might be entertained by it. But, but if you're not analyzing it, then you're not doing, you're not doing that book justice. If you don't analyze what's happening in, in uh, Huckleberry Finn, you're not, you're not getting the full breadth of the story. Um, It's, and, and I'm not just talking about the themes and such. I'm also talking about how it's written, how it's it's crafted together. And people seem to be losing that with movies. It's it, it, I feel like all of a sudden, not all of a sudden, it's probably always been this way, but people are mistaking entertaining for good. And that's 
not the case. You know, I Saving Private Ryan is a great movie. Uh, there are a few people out there who would also be like, oh, it's entertaining, but most people are horrified by war and would not call it entertaining. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then you have a, a movie like Aladdin, which I feel like is very entertaining, but it's not it's not a good movie. It's not a well-made movie. There is a middle ground. There's something like I, I would put Raiders of the Lost Ark in that category. It's super entertaining from start to finish. And it's, it's a Steven Spielberg masterpiece. It's just, it, it hits all the right buttons. Um, don't, you know, it's, it's art. All art is meant to be analyzed. Mm-hmm. The people who are making these movies, there are movies out there, trash movies that are just being made to satisfy and to make money. But I, I can guarantee you that Guy Ritchie said that he he had intentions in the way he crafted this movie and some of the shots that he wanted to convey, some of the way he wanted to send up the musical numbers. He had intentions in it. And to just kind of brush that aside and be like, nope, it was it's just a remake. It's just like that. That's almost an insult to him. I, I you know, he wants to make the money. He wants to be successful. He wants to be able to make more movies, but uh, it's at the end of the day, you guarantee. I can guarantee you, he wants people to remember that that's guy Richie's Aladdin, not just Aladdin mm-hmm. made by some random director. So I'll get off my right. soapbox now. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, but I enjoyed it. I en- I enjoyed watching it and all that. So yeah. anyway, so if you have folks haven't seen it, definitely consider seeing it. So uh, finally, a new Pixar trailer dropped recently um pixar's onward have you seen this i did i I watched it uh with um it's the suburban fairy tale that they touted at the 2017 d23 expo made by dan scanlon uh and starring Mm -hmm. in the voice roles uh uh tom holland uh, who we know as peter parker spider-man and uh chris pratt Star Lord had all the other roles that he's done that everyone knows him for, and yeah. they're brothers, and uh, and it's it uh, it is very different based on the appearance of all other Pixar movies, in in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I agree, and it, you know it didn't um, it didn't like wow me. Uh, now the animation did, but I thought you know I don't want to see a film that basically looks like it's in you know it's i don't want to see these magical mystical characters living sort of a mundane suburban life you know i you know so you know i I, you know they have problems with um you know unicorns getting into the trash okay well i have problems with raccoons and skunks getting into mine so i i don't feel like i need to see that that doesn't intrigue me yeah so i don't know I think that might be more on I, the I, trailer I, is not not <laughs> leading enough into it. Kind of, I, I would have to go back to watch, but I feel like they're showcasing a side of it that's kind of like if they would just show the some early scenes from Shrek with all the fairy tale characters in the same kind mm-hmm. of place living living their own lives. I feel like I feel like once the finished product is out. Those are going to be some visual gags that make up a very, very, very small percentage of the movie. But they were going for the laughs in the trailer, and, and you know they, I it got a chuckle out of me. So, 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, well, we'll see what happens. So this is one of the first Pixar films where I'm not real excited about it. So yep. based on the trailer, the important so we'll see what happens. Yeah, the important part is it's an original concept. And it's an original. That is nice. Yeah, and as they said, uh, as Dan Scanlon said at D twenty three, it's 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 a personal story for him. It's it has uh, ties to his life. So i I think the heart will be delivered, but maybe it just is an example of a bad trailer because those do exist. <laughs> okay. Oh yeah, absolutely. It's an art to create a trailer. Yes. So. All right. Well, speaking of, of animated characters and all that, well, in our series about the history of Disney animated films, we have been discussing the four phases of Mickey Mouse's career. Uh, phase one is from Mickey's screen appearance in 1928 Steamboat Willie until his 1940 appearance in Fantasia. And during these 12 years, Mickey Mouse became one of the most popular stars in the United States and the world. Really, um, phase two begins on the eve of World War II and lasts for two decades. During this phase, Mickey's screen stardom begins to fade. His, he experiences a revival with the debut of the Mickey Mouse Club television show and the opening of Disneyland in 1955. Now, phase three covers the turbulent 1960s and into the presidency of Ronald Reagan in the 1980s. Mickey was embraced by the pop art culture and um, became a time-tested classic. Phase four of Mickey's career is from the mid-1980s through present day. Through the fractious political and social climate, Mickey Mouse has now become a global icon driven by nostalgia and brilliant marketing. So we ended episode 80 in 1935 at the height of Mickey mania when fans of the Mouse had even more to celebrate as Walt Disney announced his newest Mickey Mouse cartoon, The Band Concert. And billboards and banners hailed this cartoon as a tremendous event and theater owners were beside themselves as they advertised Mickey Mouse in Technicolor. Now, the Silly Symphony series had converted to full color in 1932 with Flowers and Trees, and all the Hollywood studios were discovering the extra costs associated with color film processing for their live-action films. And Walt and Roy were faced with the additional and unique expenses associated with color animation. Nevertheless, in 1932, Mickey Mouse was the star of the Walt Disney Studio. So when Walt and Roy signed a contract with United Artists Studio as their distributor, they hatched a plan. In November 1932, the Fifth Academy Awards were the first to include the categories Short Subject Comedy and Short Subject Novelty. And this was the year Walt received an Academy Award for the Technicolor debut of Flowers and Trees and a special award for the creation of Mickey Mouse. Now, Walt and Roy were asked to create a special reel for the Academy Awards banquet titled Parade of Nominees, which showed Mickey and Minnie leading a parade of caricatured acting nominees. And this short was created in Technicolor 
and two years before the band concert, we see Mickey Mouse in a colorful band uniform. Now, Roy's plan with Parade of Award nominees was to show the executives at United Artists who had refused to support transitioning Mickey Mouse to color due to the additional costs to reconsider their decision after seeing how delightful Mickey and Minnie appeared in color. Well, Roy's plan was unsuccessful. Al Lichtman at United Artists wrote, I saw the print of the Parade of Nominees, and Mickey certainly looks grand in color. I think it would be just marvelous to have Mickey in color, and I have given a lot of thought about it for next season. To be frank, though, conditions will have to improve to enable us to afford it. Hmm. I like the Parade of Nominees. Yeah, it's I was simple. wondering... It is. It's fun. How many? How many? Uh, and and we'll have a link to it in our show notes. But how, um, did you? Uh, how many of the the nominees were you able to recognize? Oh gosh, um, it's been a while since I I watched it. The one that always sticks out to me is um, Jekyll and Hyde. Uh huh. And. That's yeah, that's all Frederick can, March, yeah. I think. Yeah. And that's all I can really remember. Was Charles Lawton is the hunchback of Notre Dame in that. And I just watched it the other day. And I, I don't remember. But um I don't remember. And, and I think Elsa Lanchester is in it. And anyway, but yeah, there was a there were a couple I wasn't sure about. But yeah. I think a lot I think for the most part I got them all. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's. It, I think it's just uh, more or less just for, for how kind of cute it is with the entire mm-hmm. uh, processional at the beginning, and you know, like, like I said, it's very simple. It's literally, uh, it, it's what essentially made like Scooby Doo famous. Just that rolling background with uh-huh. characters, uh, the repeating being, background. There's yeah. a, the farmhouse and the castle. Yep, yep, over <laughs> and over again. But yeah. yeah, no, it's it's cute for what it is. Yeah, it is. It is. Now, the United Artists era of Mickey's Black and White cartoon shorts represents some of the finest in Mickey's animation history. Although Ub Iwerks had left the studio two years earlier, Mickey never looked better. The studio had developed a team of Mickey artists and animation specialists, and many of these artists would remain with Walt for decades, like Les Clark, Johnny Cannon, and Marvin Woodard, and they would help define Mickey's on-screen character. Dick Lundy, the studio's dance specialist, would capture Mickey and Minnie's rhythmic movements whenever they broke into dance, and, and they broke into dance all the time. Artist Freddie Moore showed an instinctive gift for animation and became one of Mickey's leading animators after Walt recognized Moore's natural gift for appealing animation that emphasized Mickey's kind and cheerful personality and modest traits. Now, Mickey's personality during this time also crystallized and broke free from limitations of his earlier films and was not yet burdened by the good boy image of acceptable behavior that was to come. 
Now, Ted Sears in the story department outlined his ideas of optimal stories for Mickey, stating that Mickey's comedy depends entirely on the situation he is placed in. Mickey is most amusing when in a serious predicament, trying to accomplish some purpose under difficulties or against time. And it was during this era that we begin to see the gradual transition of the mischievous Mickey Mouse into the earnest, responsible Mickey Mouse. So as 1935 approached, Walt Disney's exclusive contract with Technicolor was coming to an end. The Silly Symphonies had created such a sensation in the film industry that the other studios were preparing for Walt's contract with Technicolor to end its term, and so that they could begin making their own three-strip Technicolor cartoons. And Walt was not about to let the star of his studio get left behind. So he went to United Artists again and stated that producing the Mickey Mouse cartoons in color was a necessity. And this time, United Artists agreed. So an early story outline for a cartoon with the working title, The Park Concert barely gave anyone an idea of what Walt and his animators were creating. And it's it said a small town band trying to play the William Tell Overture in a village park. They take it very seriously and in spite of a troublesome bee and a baby tornado, they go right on playing. Now I just have to pipe in with a question. I I doubt it's such a random, bizarre question, so I I doubt that you'll know the answer off the top of your head but um besides like we obviously know the band concert made uh made william chell overture known to a lot of people and and then obviously uh it continued on and on and becoming more popular along the way i think um i I think i remember it in looney tunes shorts Mm -hmm. at times uh the lone ranger theme song i was yep Mm -hmm. that's where i was going next Mm -hmm. and um I even know it in uh, in A Clockwork Orange during a very, very uh, inappropriate scene. That, <laughs> a bit brutal. Yeah. Yes, uh, but um, but it was used. It's it ended up being used so so much throughout uh, throughout our time in in media. What was it like? Why do you think that it was chosen at that time? Was it just for for the pace of the music, or was it something that was was popular still even at that time? Because I know I, it was I made it was, in the eighteen hundreds. Yeah, it was popular. It was very well known. Rossini was, you know, it was his music was one of those that people knew because it, it was it was like he was like a it was like the pop um, music of symphony music. Okay. It, okay. it was something that people knew they were familiar with. Um, if you if you took music, which was more common in schools mm-hmm. than it is now, um, you know, it was taught. Like even in elementary school, this that this was always a piece that was taught. Okay, you know, and so so it was it was commonly known. But also, I think it was because it was upbeat, uh, and we'll get into how they were able to weave this tune into um, some of the other musical themes 
that were in uh, that were also you know highlighted yeah in the band concert and how it even um it even captured notice of of a very famous com- um, conductor at the time okay and so so i think it was a combination of a lot but i think rossini was more well known by um the average person or at least the music was than maybe today where unfortunately our education system has has sort of dropped music history and education i yeah i mean i i feel like i must have been one of the last generations out there that that had not had to i that was a choice there was electives that i Mm -hmm. took well even not so much it was i had the choice to be in choir take an instrument or learn actual uh, history of architecture and, and music, and I chose I chose to learn the history of all that. Mm-hmm. Then I learned to play guitar later on my own. So. Yeah, yeah. No, when, in elementary school, we we had music, and and then um, and then yeah, in college, as part of my credential, I had to take um, music history. Me and too. Concept yep. and study. I had to learn how. Yeah, and all that. So. Yep. Anyway, yeah. Well, thank you for answering. You did know the yeah, answer. You're <laughs> yeah, hopefully it's the correct one. Yeah, I believe you. Well, <laughs> well, story development began in the spring of 1934 for the Park concert, and the story outline was pretty similar to the finished film. Mickey Mouse was cast as the band leader, with Goofy, Horace, Horse Collar, Clarabelle, Cow, Peter Pig, and several other pigs and goats as band members. Donald Duck, who had recently made his film debut in The Wise Little Hen, was originally cast to play the saxophone as a band member. A number of scenes were cut, including one with the band members tuning up, Mickey's arrival in a chauffeured Model T automobile, some gags involving Mickey's mischievous nephews, some vignettes depicting the small-town atmosphere. Um, Donald was recast as a disruptive uh, like hot dog and peanuts popcorn vendor who played turkey in the straw on an endless supply of flutes. And this is the role that solidified the Duck's personality as a temperamental troublemaker. Now, as the story developed, Walt turned the baby tornado originally conceived as demolishing a birdhouse and picking some flowers into an epic cyclone. Because, you know, everything had to be big with Walt. Um, Walt sketched out the basic idea. Mickey would be undaunted as he conducted the storm segment of the William Tell Overture as he and the entire band are scooped up by the cyclone. Now, this gave Walt's artists the challenge of animating six or seven characters simultaneously as they played their instruments with pages of sheet music, chairs, and music stands flying around. Plus, everything in this scene had to swirl around whilst increasing and decreasing in size to maintain a believable real-life perspective. And this was all done by hand, without any computers. And I watched this about, as I was preparing this segment, I watched band concert about four or five times. Mm-hmm. And the animation is spectacular. Oh, absolutely. When you realize... This was done by hand. It, it, it is amazing. Oh yeah, no, the, it's it's 
It, it is remarkable. It a hundred percent is. It's so so impressive. It's it, it's where you have to step back and and really look at when this was made and say how how were they that good at what they were doing? <laughs> oh yeah, I mean these these were just masters of artistry, mm-hmm. you know, and storytelling. Now. And then, then the comedy of the cartoon is underpinned by its brilliant musical score. And this is what we're getting into. Perfectly combining Rossini's William Tell Overture with Donald's playing of Turkey in the Straw. There you go. You know what that's from. Yeah, um yeah. <laughs> what? So, yeah, I, I'm sure you have the same ornament as I do. <laughs> oh, I do, but it's packed away. <laughs> oh, no, mine always sits on my desk. <laughs> I remember you'd mentioned that yep. before. Do you want to tell folks who might not know? Yeah, so uh years ago, I don't even know how long ago now, uh Hallmark released a band concert ornament that mm-hmm. is um that has the the um the zoetrope Right. right, yeah. Um, of and on the inside, it's Mickey conducting. On the outside, it's scenes from the band concert, and then it's Mickey in his conductor's outfit on top, and it, it plays two different songs. And as you you turn it, it will spin and play the music, and you can see Mickey conducting on the inside. So yeah, it's a very cool ornament. Yeah. Oh no, it, it's beautiful. Let's see if, there we go. There you go. Yeah, but how? But that—that's what's amazing. How it just—it it sounds like somehow Turkey and Straw was part of the William Tell Overture, the way they weaved it in so masterfully. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's amazing, nope. and there's a third theme in there too. Um, there's another little song in there as well, but um, that I picked up. But um, but yeah, director um, Wilfred Jackson and score composer Lee Harlan, um, they just pulled this off so brilliantly that Italian conductor and acclaimed musician Arturo Toscanini is reported to have expressed his admiration for the band concert. And he saw it six times in the theater wow. and then later invited Walt to his home in Italy. Those Italians love their Mickey. They do. Oh, they do. But I mean, but Toscanini. I mean, he was big in in the day. So, um, and, and you, I, his music is still available. You can get it, you know, on you know on streaming iTunes, services so, everywhere. Streaming services, yeah. So, so, uh, so, thank you. That, 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 that's very fortuitous that you have that ornament there. Oh, I have to. I just noticed it's broken too. So that also upsets oh. me. But I'll get over that later. <laughs> well. Mickey's color debut in his oversized red band leader's coat, like we're saying, it's just a visual success as well. Walt assigned some of his best animators to this film. Um, Les Clark's opening close-up of Mickey at the conductor stand, it's one of the most famous images of Mickey. And, and Ergo de Orso proved himself to be a superb effects animator with his scenes of the approaching cyclone. And Jerry Geronimi's scene of Goofy and Clarabelle flirting is brief, but it's a favorite scene for many Disney fans. And so 
much of a favorite that although it would be decades before the public would once again see Clarence horse collar Clarabel Cow and Peter Pig, this quick scene appeared to break up Clarence and Clarabel because when they reappeared on television decades later, Clarabel's more often paired with Goofy. So so there was a little something going on there, I think, behind Clarence's back, maybe. You never know. So <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so so the release of the band concert was treated as an event by the Walt Disney Studio with a large promotional campaign and press kit. Surprisingly though, it did not receive any Academy Award nominations, but it has become one of the most highly acclaimed of Mickey's cartoon shorts. Yeah, just pure iconic. Oh, absolutely. It's it's one of my favorites. Mm-hmm. It's one I can watch over and over again. Uh, in 1994, the band concert was rated third in the book, The 50 Greatest Cartoons, which rated the greatest cartoons of all times by members um, of the field of animation. It was the highest ranked Disney cartoon on the list and the only one of the top five not produced by the Warner Brothers studio. It also received the Venice Film Festival Gold Medal for Best Animation in 1935. So, so in terms of sort of... in, in in film animation history, Craig, what do you think? What what is the band concert's place? It's definitely up there. Um, I mean, it it also comes down to personal taste. So, uh, do you know what in the book was rated rated higher? I don't. I haven't come across the yeah. book. Uh, Unfortunately, I don't have it. I have to. Might be one I have to get yeah. my hands on. I mean, I would assume. I mean, Bugs I, Bunny. <laughs> well, that's I. I kind of. I, I would look at like Steamboat Willie is number one, is the most important um, and and greatest. And uh, actually, yeah, I might. I might take. Um, uh, I might pick a Looney Tunes. Uh, cartoon for for number two uh, a night at the opera mm-hmm. um yes that definitely that is that is also that is also huge um yeah i it, it, this i'm i'm trying to i mean i'm i'm no i'm not really being straightforward in answering your question with it i'm just trying to think of like even other cartoons that kind of live up to this there's definitely ones that i I like just as much and sometimes more like I think Lonesome Ghosts is is mm-hmm. an underrated not underrated everyone loves it but I think that's a classic um I like uh, the the names escaping me but um uh, Mickey Donald and Goofy riding in the trailer um Oh yeah uh the- when, mm-hmm. sorry no, I, th- I think it's called like the big trailer or the trailer or yeah, something and, like that. yeah uh but then uh, there's also um uh, there's also other random ones like I, I love a lot of the Humphrey the bear cartoons uh, yeah. just because it's something fun about that I uh, I love Lambert the sheepish lion I know that's mm-hmm. that's on the longer side of, of shorts and um, the the I'm gonna butcher the the pronunciation on this but the little Hiawati Hiawatha uh, Hiawatha mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. Um, 
so there there's so many good cartoons out there and that's just from those not even to count the other studios uh yeah. what else was happening you know they even go into like popeye and betty boop and uh so many others but it's just i, I don't know i feel like this it's kind of like it is kind of like mickey's silly symphony it it blends everything together. It blends the music together perfectly with the visuals. It it feels groundbreaking, and it still holds up to this day. It's it, it's very important. Um, it does and yeah? And it's it really it really deserves to be one of the greatest ones. Oh yeah, and and the quality of the animation definitely yeah, yeah holds up today. Yeah, I, they they could show it in a theater, you know, when they you know, you know, making it you know digitally yeah. you know sharper and all that and it would be just as enjoyed by audiences yeah. to i i i mean just for me i'm the kind of guy where i i choose kind of like first as a as something that should kind of outweigh a lot of other things when it comes to ranking so the fact that like that the band concert was the only one in the top five not produced by Warner Brothers and the highest-ranked Disney cartoon. To me, that seems a little off. Um, mm-hmm. I I would put Steamboat Willie first, but I'm again, like I just said, I, I value a lot of firsts in that. And I know that wasn't even the first. That we could throw that to Plane Crazy if we wanted to, but um, it's I I would say that if you would put it, if you ask most people of what they think are the greatest uh, Disney Mickey Mouse cartoons, it, it would definitely be top three. Uh, there's there's one other one I love that I know we're going to talk about a little bit later on, so okay. I'll save the gushing when we get there. Okay. Well, for the next several years, though, Walt Disney Studio released a series of full-color cartoons starring Mickey Mouse. Some of the most critically acclaimed include 1935's Mickey's Garden, which Mickey goes on a pesticide-induced hallucinogenic trip in a giant garden with huge inebriated insects seeking revenge, and Through the Mirror, which is Mickey's version of Alice of Wonderland's Through the Looking Glass. But the most popular of all the cartoon shorts during this era were the ones starring Mickey Mouse, Donald Duck, and Goofy. The plots of all these shorts were simple. The three friends would team up to complete a task, and hilarity would ensue. The titles of these shorts told the plots. Moving Day, Moose Hunters, Clock Cleaners, Boat Builders. You know, in all these cartoons, the characters' personalities became more defined, and their friendship was cemented. And let's not forget that during this time, the studio was working on an ambitious project. Its first full-length animated feature, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. Also, Donald Duck and other new characters in the Walt Disney Studio were starting to become more popular than Mickey. Despite Walt's pleasure with the success of these new characters, he was not about to abandon Mickey. He felt a loyalty to Mickey, and there were also commercial considerations. Walt was determined to produce prestigious projects to invigorate Mickey's career and better display his personality. And the first of these projects was The Brave Little Tailor. The story had first been proposed in 1934 as a silly symphony, but was shelved. 
After Walt designated it as a Mickey costume short, all studio departments gave special care and attention to this project. Comic strip artist Al Taliaferro sketched out the giant for the story outline and added both Mickey for size comparison and Mickey's mule from the, old, from the short Ye Olden Days, which was another costume period piece. Now, during my tour of the new exhibition at the Walt Disney Family Museum, Mickey Mouse from Walt to the World, and that tour was led by Disney artist Andreas Deja. He stated that the Brave Little Taylor is the most important Mickey Mouse cartoon of this time, and it was an important influence on him and his career. Uh, this cartoon was scheduled to coincide with Mickey's 10th anniversary in 1938 and was one of the few cartoons Walt based on an established fairy tale. In the summer of 1937, Walt was very open with the press about the initiative to invigorate Mickey's career, and he described it as Mickey's comeback. In this story, based on the tale, I think it was the Valiant Taylor by the Brothers Grimm, Mickey is the mild-mannered Taylor who kills a swarm of pesky houseflies. The townspeople mistake Mickey for a giant killer, and that 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 has been what well, that has um after Mickey brags that he's killing seven with one blow. Yeah. So so the king sets Mickey out on a quest to kill a giant that has been tormenting the village. And if successful, he will win the hand of Princess Minnie Mouse in marriage. And in the end, Mickey saves the village using his talent with a needle and thread. Now, by this time, Mickey's uh, team of animators were well-experienced and able to give Mickey a fluidity of movement and expressiveness that had never before been seen. They used his whole body to create his personality. Even Mickey's outfit was reactive, with his feathered cap reacting to Mickey's mood. If Mickey was downhearted, his hat and feather drooped in a dejected manner. Mm-hmm. Mickey also got a full makeover by Freddie Moore, who by now was the studio's leading animator and the one all other animators of Mickey Mouse turned to for advice. In 1938, with Walt's blessing, Moore redesigned Mickey. Mickey's head to his body was now larger than it used to be, but the most significant change was that Mickey now had eyes with pupils. The other animators saw this as a definite improvement because it opened up more acting possibilities for Mickey. He could now look innocent or embarrassed out of the top of his eyes, or he could glance to the side without his expression falling apart. Although Freddie Moore was initially assigned most of Mickey's scenes, soon after production started, he was moved into a supervisory position. He animated some of Mickey's animation scenes, but primarily oversaw the work of other artists, including Les Clark, Ollie Johnston, Ray Patterson, and Riley Thompson. Bill Tytla was assigned to the giant, owing to his skill at animating large, powerful characters. And due to a death in his family, Tytla was absent from the studio for a month, resulting in work on this cartoon being delayed. 
But it was worth the wait because his humorous, dull-witted, mindlessly malevolent giant was a brilliant piece of character animation. The Brave Little Taylor was one of the most expensive cartoons to date and caused Walt and Roy to rethink future budgets for their cartoon. However, it was one of the most successful and was exactly what Walt had hoped for, a cartoon short with all the production values and lavishness of a feature-length film. The Brave Little Taylor earned an Academy Award nomination for Best Cartoon Short and is considered one of the finest of all Walt Disney's cartoon shorts. I'd agree with that. Yeah, yeah. I do too. This was what I was going to mention uh, early. Or this is this is definitely up there for me. I mm-hmm. I love the Brave Little Taylor. Uh, I think mostly. Uh, I I, th- I mean it's. It's obviously a great story. I, I love the fun ending with the entire carnival uh, <laughs> yes. that, is, that is set up and stuff, and and really just the entire interplay between uh, between Mickey and the giant, and even some of like the the hilarious things the giant does, like uh, how he he rolls up and and, and lights his own cigar um, <laughs> with the hay bale. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> yeah, don't smoke out there, kids. Um, <laughs> since Leonard and Malton's not here to, to warn you not to do that before we talk about it. But uh, no, it's, it is, it is such a fun short and it's, it just has that, that special, that special X factor to it that it's, I mean, when you talk about it and you go into the history, it's easy to see why they were able to put in the effort and attention to it and how, how that, that translated to the screen, but it just uh, kind of, it, it just it still works to this day the same way the band concert does it and you know i that was one of the hardest things for me when new phantasmic debuted a couple years back i know i know it's the brave little tailor outfit that he wore in phantasmic is a different color scheme from from the one in the actual short uh but you know it's we all know that's where that's the look that was inspired mm-hmm. by it it upset me so much when that was changed and and mickey was no longer uh taking on the dragon in in the brave little taylor outfit like to me that is that is the signifier of of the little guy standing up against mm-hmm. the big guy and it's the cartoon set up that story and then it translated in something that we know and love at Disneyland and and I, it's it, to me it was so important it, it needed to still be around but what are you going to do? No, nope, I agree. I agree. And um I even like the storybook land canal boats, you know, they had the patchwork. Yeah. You know, of flowers that they said was the quilt that yeah. the giant slept under. I thought that was a nice little nod. Yeah, I yeah, I, I forget theater. about that almost every single time. I haven't gone on for it for a while. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then when I read it, then I ride it again. It's like, oh yeah, that's that's adorable. Yeah. So, but I, I agree. I love watching when Mickey is defeating the giant. How he squirms in and out. Yeah, yeah. As he's saying, I mean, the animation is just so amazing. Oh yeah, just yeah. moving around. It's yeah. rapid. It's it's fast. Uh-huh. It's exciting. It's mm-hmm. it's good. It's really yeah. good. Yeah, definitely. 
Well, as time went on, the artists continued to experiment with Mickey's look. For a while, they gave him three-dimensional ears that turned in perspective, but this and uh, some other ideas were dropped. Uh, in the first 10 years of Mickey's career, uh, Mickey Mouse didn't develop just a following in merchandise. He developed maturity and a character. His role of impulsive pranks and slapstick gag-driven antics were given to his pals. Mickey was given more and more straight man roles, and many stories originally considered for Mickey were passed on to Donald, Goofy, and other characters. Was this because the studio would receive complaints and Mickey Mouse kicked someone in the pants? Um, or because of Walt's close identification with Mickey? You know, over the years, Walt often remarked, there's a lot of the mouse in me. As a result, in the 1940s, Mickey appeared in only 11 cartoon shorts. This is startling when you realize that in the previous decade, he had appeared in 87. In the 1940s, Pluto starred in 36 shorts, Goofy in 23, but Donald Duck topped them all with 72 cartoon shorts. Walt told New York Times film critic Frank Nugent in 1947 about Mickey Mouse, his attitude is that of an older master who's glad to give the youngsters a hand. The mouse knows we have to keep bringing new people along, new faces, but it makes his job that much easier. It was a pr- it was pretty tough when he was carrying the whole studio, but now he's got the duck, the Pluto, and the goof. As part of Mickey's recasting in good citizen roles, his animator softened his look and made him cuter. He began wearing contemporary clothes rather than his signature red shorts and yellow shoes. His round body became more pear-shaped, and his face was rounder with fuller cheeks. For a very short time, Mickey lost his tail because animators calculated they saved thousands of dollars and hours by eliminating that simple black line. However, this tale was absent only for a short time because they learned it was an important part of Mickey's expressiveness and personality. And this redesigned Mickey debuted in the 1939 short, The Pointer, which actually is is another one of my favorite of the shorts. Um, Walt's close identification with Mickey Mouse was depicted in the shorts. When Walt took up polo, so did Mickey in the cartoon Mickey's Polo Team. Mickey also moved to the suburbs and wore snap-brim hats. Gone was the rebellious mouth who once played cow's teeth like a xylophone and always rescued Minnie Mouse from the clutches of the evil Pete. By 1940, Donald Duck was the studio's box office star, and Walt's focus was on feature-length animated films rather than the cartoon shorts. By this time, most careers of Mickey Mouse's contemporaries had faded or ended. Babe Ruth retired in 1935. George Gershwin passed in 1937. Lindbergh's admiration of Nazi Germany tarred his heroic image. In 1940, Charlie Chaplin would make his first talkie, The Great Dictator, then go on to make only four more films. By 1941, Al Jolson would quit performing, and the Marx Brothers would end their film career. However, after a decade on top, Walt was not about to let Mickey Mouse's career fade from the public. 
Well, just to defend Charlie Chaplin there, he did make like six amazing films before The Great Dictator, so um, so I, I can give him a pass on that. He was ready to, to kind of wind down after that. I Mickey guess. still had steam. <laughs> <laughs> In our next installment, we'll talk about how Walt Disney would develop an idea for a Silly Symphony cartoon short into a landmark animated film, with Mickey Mouse starring in his most iconic role. But now it's time for Craig to star in one of his most iconic roles as our expert in This Week in Disney History. Okay, Craig, so are you all set? I think Here for so. for the week of June 9th? There were a lot of births and a lot of deaths this week. Oh, so my favorite. Week. I know. Okay, so for June 9th, voice actor Pete Renaudet is born Pierre L. Renaudet, um, spelled completely differently, <laughs> in Louisiana on June 9th, 1939. What is his Disney connection? Um, and he has a lot. <laughs> yeah, I, I believe I know at least one, and that is that he is not the greatest of the country bears, but he's arguably the most important. I, I know he's Henry. That's right. That's but, correct. Um, I. Okay. What else? Well, he's the voice of the milkman who chases O'Malley and the other cats out of his truck in Walt Disney's 1970s, uh, The Aristocats. Uh Uh He was uh, great moments in Mr. Lincoln. He is the narrator of the Walt Disney story film. And in in the old adventure through inner space, he was the um, calm chap man. And he was also the voice of President Lincoln for Walt Disney World's Hall of Presidents between 1993 and 2008. I clearly picked the most important answer. So. You, yes, absolutely. So, Okay, for June 10th, Thelma Howard, the Disney family's live-in housekeeper and cook for 30 years, beginning in 1951 when she was just 38, passed away just shy of her 80th birthday on June 10th, 1994. What was the nickname given to her by Christopher Disney? Um, because he, he could not pronounce um, Thelma. I feel like we talked about this. I know we've talked about mm-hmm. her before. I feel mm-hmm. like we've talked about this one. But I don't, I don't remember. The main thing I remembered about her was that she was way richer than she ever knew that she was oh absolutely i don't i don't remember the answer to this yeah he um her nickname was fufu okay well because diane and ron's son christopher oldest son christopher could not pronounce thelma now walt often referred to thelma howard as her as the real life mary poppins and Uh, she uh, And as a housekeeper for the Disney family, she received a few shares of Disney stock from Walt as a Christmas gift every year, as well as for birthdays and special events. And, you know, she she was a child of the Depression, so she lived frugally throughout her life and really didn't um, 
know the rising value of the stock, and she felt it would be disloyal to the Disney family to sell her stock. So as you mentioned, Craig, when at the time of her passing, she uh, owned almost um, $9 million in Disney yeah. stock. Yeah, I remembered it was a lot. And I remember the, the Walt called her the real-life Mary Poppins. But yeah. foo-foo. Jeez, Louise. I'm not getting that. <laughs> yeah. So, okay, June 11th, actor, did you ever watch, uh, did you ever see the television drama Medical Center? Uh, no. Oh, okay, well, it was a little before your time. <laughs> I watched it. But actor Chad Everett was born Raymond Lee Crampton in South Bend, Indiana on June 11th, 1937. For many folks, he may be best known for his role as Dr. Joe Gannon in the television drama Medical Center, which aired on CBS from 1969 to 1976. He also appeared in more than 40 films and television series. But what is his Disney connection yeah, got me. This is one of your favorite attractions that unfortunately has been cast to the trash heap. He was selected by the family of veteran actor John Wayne to be the voice of the animatronic figure of John Wayne in Disney's Hollywood Studios Great Movie Ride. Oh, wow. Okay, well, I don't want to feel stupid here, but I always assumed that they just pulled some audio from him. I always thought that too. <laughs> yeah. Learn something new every day. <laughs> I know. I know. But I guess the audio quality wasn't good enough. I don't know. Yeah, fair enough. <clears throat> All right. For June 12th, which Disneyland attraction opened in Tomorrowland on June 12th, 1957? The, um, uh, what could that have been? Um, I can I can give you a hint. It's it's your home of the future from the past. Um, uh, Monsanto, uh, House of the Future. That's right, because you said that's where you would live <laughs> in, in one of our Q and A sessions. I did. Yes. Yes. Yeah, uh huh. Uh-huh. This walkthrough attraction provided a glimpse of living in the future, and it remain it would remain open for over ten years. So, yeah. It was but- a, I, I still stand by that, too. I, uh, mm-hmm. It's where I'd want to live. It was a house well, already set up right there. Why not take advantage of it? <laughs> I know. It had a microwave and everything. Yeah. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> okay, for June 13th, which Disney actress was featured on the cover of Life magazine on June 13th, 1960? 1960. Um, think about what films were coming out of the studio around then. Yeah, I mean, if you would have added a couple more years, my initial thought would have jumped to to Julie Andrews, but that's not in the cards. Um, not yet. Yeah, I I would assume, I don't know when she started slowing down. I would assume it's either Annette or Haley Mills, one of the two in there. Okay, well, you have a 50-50 chance here. I'll say, uh, I'll go with Annette. Okay, you're right. It's Haley Mills. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) A pert and perfect Pollyanna is what it said Uh, on the cover of the magazine. Well, good for her making it on the cover of Life for uh, Pollyanna. I mean, that's, I wouldn't have guessed that, but. That was, and that was, Life Magazine Kids was big 
back in 1960. Yeah. Life and Look magazine. But Life was th- the big magazine, yeah. especially for its incredible photography. Yeah, one of the reasons I wish I would have been born in another time. But yeah. I have a good still. And it was it was much larger than the the versions that are coming out now that are you know special editions. Yeah. That like we saw from Mary Poppins and Disneyland, you know, the Disney parks. Yeah. And all that that are coming out and Mickey Mouse. But they do I, I like that they capture the same essence in a way, visual mm-hmm. visual representations that feel well put together. Um, I agree. Yeah. So which okay for June fourteenth, which three attractions were christened at Disneyland on June fourteenth, nineteen fifty nine? Okay, so this is oh fifty nine. That's easy. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know why I was struggling. There I was for thinking, a why are you yeah. sweating this? <laughs> so uh, Matterhorn, um, mm-hmm. submarines, and monorail. Correct. Yeah. Absolutely. That's right. 59, 59. (laughs) Uh, Okay, very good. Yeah, big anniversaries this year. All right. On June 15th, 1957, Don DeFore's Silver Banjo Barbecue Restaurant in Frontierland opened. Operated by well-known at the time, actor Don DeFore and his brother Vern, this restaurant is inspired by a silver banjo their father had given them. The Silver Banjo is the only concession in Disneyland with the name of a real living person and was located next to Aunt Jemima's Pancake House. What stands there today? Oh, gosh. Um, um, I'm... I know we've talked about Aunt Jemima before, and it wasn't Aunt Jemima's where Riverbell Terrace is. Is that your final answer? Was this where Riverbell Terrace is? <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> they, what they did is they combined Aunt Jemima's and Don DeForce into a larger restaurant, and it gotcha. became and it's now Riverbell Terrace. Gotcha. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, and and for. For these, uh, for the Disneyland attractions that opened in 1959, and Don DeFore's Banjo Barbecue Restaurant and all that. If you want to learn more about those, I talk about them in my 60 Years of Disneyland series that started on our old Disneyland um, podcast and in, is in our archives there on DisneyUnplugged.com and also continued on on Connecting with Walt. So. Mm-hmm. There's a lot more information about that. You did very well this week, Craig. Yeah, not too bad. Uh, it's it was it, that was a fun one. I you had me yeah. set up to be worried there with all the the boring and dying and all that, but yeah. That's... Oh, there were a lot more. Believe me, I don't know what it is about this time of year. Next year, we will do it next year. <laughs> Okay, well, Craig, it's fun to talk to get back to Mickey Mouse yes. and all that. So, what do you are there Mickey Mouse cartoon shorts that, from this era that you could just sort of watch over and over again? Um, I mean, we talked about some. Yeah, and, I mean, the biggest ones for me really are the band concert and mm-hmm. 
in Brave Little Taylor. I know you listed another one that uh, you want to uh, include in the show notes that I would also agree with, uh, Through the Mirror, um, mm-hmm. uh, without a doubt. Uh, it's uh, even even the ones that don't stick out in this era as much, uh, I, I feel like they are still very watchable and rewatchable. Um so I, I don't want to cop out an answer on that one. And I think I'm pretty sure I said the same thing in in regards to uh, the last era of Mickey we talked about and, and the one before that, uh, even though it's not a lot of years in between all of them. But uh, it, this, I don't know, this feels like a, a very special time in in Mickey's career. Though a lot of this does have that that feeling of classic Mickey in a mm-hmm. way. And it's... I, I don't think you can go wrong with any cartoon from from this distinct era. I agree. I, I think this is the Mickey that that really in, was endeared to the public and that has carried on his legacy. Yeah, and it is from this era. Although I I am partial to the mischievous Mickey from the black and white days. I love those cartoons. Yeah, I but, think this is more my era for yeah. sure. But I, but I do, um, but I enjoy the artistry and the personality of of Mickey during this time. So um, anyway, so yeah, so so it's a lot of fun. And then when in our next installment, of course, we'll talk about um, his greatest role, arguably, and and then then it then Mickey changes. Definitely, his roles change, and we'll take a look at yeah. that as well. Yeah. So. So, um, m- many books, films, articles, interviews, and lectures were sourced for this episode of Connecting with Walt, including Mickey Mouse, Emblem of the American Spirit by Gary Apgar, Walt Disney's Mickey Mouse, The Ultimate History by J.B. Kaufman and David Gerstein, Walt Disney, an American Original by Bob Thomas, Mickey Mouse, 50 Happy Years, edited by David Bain and Bruce Harris, The Mickey Mouse Treasures by Robert Tymon, Mickey Mouse, The Evolution, The Legend, The Phenomenon by Robert Heidi and John Gilman with Monique Peterson and Patrick White. And then we will have some um, videos uh, of some of the of shorts that we talked about in our show notes. So, Craig, until next time, where can our listeners find you on the Diz Unplugged network of shows? Before I can tell you where you can find me, I thought of a couple more oh, okay. <laughs> off the top of my head, and I feel like I have to throw them in. One of my all-time favorites uh, because I love tiki culture and and all that goes along with that Hawaiian holiday. Oh, that is a good one. Percent. Um, I, I like Magician Mickey. That's mm-hmm. that's also a, a fun one. Um, Alpine climbers and uh, and then one of one of my absolute favorite ones too. That is uh, perfect for for the winter time of the year, which is what I want to live in all the time. Uh, on ice. Is yeah, that's a good one. Those, yeah. I also like the Mickey and Minnie one, Mickey and Pluto one, where because uh, it's Christmas time, and this is one of the later ones when. Um, yeah, Mickey chops down the tree, but Chip and Dale are inside the tree. Mickey brings it in to decorate the, as a Christmas tree, and Pluto figures it out. Takes Mickey a little longer. Yep. Pluto's and Pluto Christmas ends tree. up like yeah, yep. yeah, and, and Pluto ends up destroying the tree. Yeah, but it all ends up happily. Oh yeah, no, my uh, my 
I don't know if they've ever made them in the past, but one of my like bucket list uh, items, if I ever saw them again, is when Chip and Dale are, you know, they're trying to put on the the Santa disguise and stand like they're oh, candles. Oh, the little candles? If they yeah. ever made like a set of those, I think I would buy a hundred of them and actually like <laughs> I'd, I'd have a couple that I never used uh, I would never use ever and the rest I, I would constantly use every every holiday season. So uh, I, I realize I am insane. I've accepted it a long time ago. Uh, but Sorry, I, I thought of those extra couple after you said. No, those like, are those are came great. To me. Oh, boat builders too. Um, boat builders yeah. is one of my favorites as well, There's and so I and I ones. love clock, clock cleaners. Yes, too. yeah, no, just mm-hmm. wonderful, just so mm-hmm. good. Um, but in the meantime, uh, if you want to talk more about all those, uh, well, you can contact me anywhere on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Teleclaster. And if you don't want to talk to me, but you just want to watch me, uh, Tuesdays on the Walt Disney World Edition podcast, Wednesdays on the Disneyland Edition podcast, Thursdays on the Universal Edition podcast, Fridays on Connecting with Walt, and if you didn't already figure that out, uh, and then random other shows when they go up and all of that. I, I'm a busy guy. I don't know. <laughs> you are a busy guy. And in, <laughs> in the middle of all that, you're making videos. Yes. Putting them out for us to enjoy. Yeah. But what about you, Michael? Where can we find well, you? Well, you can send me messages at michael at wdwinfo.com. Twitter, I'm at mbowling121. Facebook, I'm Michael Bowling. Uh, subscribe to the one that has the Connecting with Walt banner. Instagram, I'm Michael Bowling the Diz. And you can connect with me and Craig on Twitter at the official Connecting with Walt Twitter page at Connecting Walt. If you would like to listen to more shows on the history of Walt Disney, his studios, his Imagineers, and Disneyland, check out our Disneyland podcast archives for my Disney history episodes at disunplug.com and look for past episodes of Connecting with Walt on iTunes, where you can subscribe to our show and leave some positive reviews and ratings. Thank you for making us a part of your day. And remember, I only hope that we don't lose sight of one thing, that it was all started by a man, Walt Disney, and his brother Roy. Roy.